English Bible Translations By What Standard? By William O. Einwächter Narrated by Drake Johnson Preface A little over a century ago, the question of which is the best and most trustworthy English version of Holy Scripture did not even enter into the mind of the English-speaking Christian. At that time, there really was only one version in use, the authorized King James Version. The authorized version had long since displaced the earlier English versions and was the recognized standard English Bible used and loved by nearly every English-speaking Christian in the world. The authorized version reigned unchallenged as the approved English version for nearly 300 years. During that period of time, the English-speaking church had many perplexing problems to consider, but one problem they did not have to deal with was the issue of which English version was the best and most faithful translation of Holy Scripture. Nor did the individual English-speaking believer have to wrestle with the decision of what version he should use. How things have changed! Today, the English-speaking church is confronted with a plethora of versions, with each claiming to be a faithful and accurate translation that makes the Word of God more understandable than previous versions. On top of this, a new translation seems to appear on the market every few years. For the thoughtful Christian, the situation regarding English Bible versions is troubling and perplexing. Further complicating the problem is the lack of clear guidance on the issue. There are many opinions on the subject, but very little scriptural analysis of the topic of Bible translation and of English versions. The purpose of this book is to help fill this void by 1. Setting forth the biblical doctrines that speak most directly to the issue of Bible translation, and by 2. Applying these doctrines to the subjects of translation philosophy, textual criticism, and English versions. By doing this, we hope to awaken the Church to the theological issues that are at stake in the translation of the Bible into English, and to provide the Church with a biblical criterion for judging between the many English versions. Armed with the unchanging standard of God's Word, the Christian will then be able to determine which English version is the best and most faithful representation of the Word of God in English. This book is a concise presentation of the subject of English Bible translations. It does not pretend to be an exhaustive treatment. Introduction There are now at least 18 major English versions of the Bible available, and well over 60 English translations of the New Testament. The question that faces the English-speaking church is this. Which of these many versions is the best, i.e., the most trustworthy? Which English version of Holy Scripture should be considered the standard version? Which Bible should guide the English-speaking church as it seeks to apply the whole Bible to the whole of life? With the multiplicity of English versions, the inflated claims of the Bible publishers, and the widespread disagreement among Christians over which version is the best, a definitive answer to the question of which English version is the most trustworthy may appear to be unattainable. Nevertheless, the question is of such far-reaching importance that it requires an answer. However, some in the Church believe that there is no such entity as the best English version, and that even to ask the question of which is best misguided. 
For example, Comfort states, quote, I am often asked which translation is the best. Invariably, I respond, best for what? For reading, for studying, for memorizing, and best for whom? For young people, for adults, for Protestants, for Catholics, for Jews? My responses are not intended to be complicated. Rather, they reflect the complexity of the true situation. Whereas for some language populations, there is only one translation of the Bible. English-speaking people have hundreds of translations. Therefore, one cannot say there is one single best translation that is the most accurate. Accuracy of translation must be assessed in terms of the kind of translation being judged. End quote. Also, Kubo and Specht, after condemning the KJV as being hopelessly out of date, ask, quote, But if the KJV is abandoned, what version is to take its place? Perhaps no one version will be sufficient for today. This may well be an age when multiple versions are needed. If one asks which version is best, we need to add the questions best for whom and best for what, end quote. And Lewis contends that asking such questions as, what version should I read, or are there doctrinal problems in this version or that, are akin to asking, what car shall I drive? The choice of a version all depends, says Lewis, on what you want out of a translation and whether or not it meets your needs. Now, if choosing a Bible version is based solely on personal preference, like choosing a car to drive, and if there is no standard except man's own autonomous reasoning for identifying the most trustworthy English version, and, according to some, such a single best version does not exist, then perhaps it is better for us not to trouble ourselves any further on this matter. If comfort, Lewis, Kubo, and Specht are right. Let us simply encourage each Christian and each church to choose the version they like best. Let them choose the English Bible that is right in their own eyes. It is our conviction, however, that these men, and others who think like them, are seriously mistaken. We believe that the choice of which English version to use, like any other decision made by a Christian, is not a matter of personal preference but a matter of personal obedience to scriptural principles. Let us not be deceived. God's word gives clear guidance on the subject of Bible translations, and the church must follow that guidance to the logical conclusion of determining the best and most faithful English version of the Bible. Nothing less than the integrity of revealed truth is at stake in this controversy. Casual acquiescence to a standard of personal preference in this debate is just as unacceptable as it is in the debate of moral issues, such as divorce, chastity, capital punishment, and abortion. The purpose of this book is to demonstrate that there is an objective standard that will enable the Church to cut through all the present confusion and uncertainty in regard to Bible translation, and to determine which translation is the most faithful and reliable English version of Holy Scripture. Jesus Christ has not left his Church without guidance in the crucial issue of Bible translation. In the first section of this book, we will establish the only proper standard for judging and evaluating English Bible translations. In the second and third parts of the book, we will apply this standard to the two primary issues of Bible translation. This procedure will enable us to decide which version is the most trustworthy English Bible.
The question before us in this monograph is of great importance. The future of the English-speaking Church demands our most diligent efforts to answer it. Chapter 1. The Standard for Judging English Bible Translations How does the Church go about determining the best and most faithful English translation of the Bible? By what standard can Christians evaluate the many different English versions? Should we use common sense and reason? Should we look to the sciences of linguistics, anthropology, hermeneutics, or biblical criticism? Should ease of reading and comprehension be our standard? Or should the claims of Bible publishers and their colorful advertisements promoting particular versions be our light? Is there, after all, an objective standard that believers can use to judge among the many English versions? Is there an authoritative guide that will enable Christians to measure all the competing claims and come to a clear and definite decision on which version is best? The Standard Defined There is an authoritative standard for judging Bible translations, and this standard is the Word of God itself. God's Word provides the necessary doctrines and principles to guide Christians in their evaluation of English versions. As in any question facing the Church, we must go to the law and to the testimony. And if we do not, there will be no light in us. Isaiah 8.20 As the Westminster Confession of Faith states, quote, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. Surely, the issue of English Bible translation is a current controversy, and in this debate, the supreme judge must be the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Our rule must always be sola scriptura. Therefore, the only authoritative criterion for judging and evaluating English translations of Scripture must be the biblical doctrines that bear directly on the issue of Bible translation. Or, to state this necessity in other words, your standard for determining a faithful translation is either biblical doctrine or it is something else. It is either biblical truth or it is human reason. In the debate over which is the best English version, there is simply no place for any other standard than the revealed doctrines of Holy Scripture that directly relate to the theory and practice of Bible translation. Even in choosing which English version to use for personal study and public proclamation, the Christian should be casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.15 Several doctrines pertain to the issue of Bible translation. However, two major doctrines serve as the primary standards for assessing the quality and trustworthiness of the various English versions. These standards are the doctrine of the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture and the doctrine of the providential preservation of Scripture. The Doctrine of Verbal Plenary Inspiration The Bible was not brought into being by the will of man, nor was it produced like other books. The Bible is the product of divine inspiration. The doctrine of divine inspiration is that the Holy Spirit supernaturally guided the human authors of Scripture so that what they wrote was the very word of God, free from all error and all omission. Packer says, 
Quote, Inspiration is to be defined as a supernatural providential influence of God's Holy Spirit upon the human authors, which caused them to write what he wished to be written for the communication of revealed truth to others. End quote. Hodge gives the orthodox view of the inspiration of Scripture. Quote, on this subject, the common doctrine of the Church is, and ever has been, that inspiration was an influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of certain select men, which rendered them the organs of God for the infallible communication of His mind and will. They were in such a sense the organs of God, that what they said, God said. End quote. The doctrine of the divine inspiration of the Bible, which is taught throughout Scripture, is clearly set forth in the following Scriptures. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 If any man think himself to be a prophet, or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty seven. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because, when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 These passages declared the divine origin and supernatural character of the Bible. The apostles and prophets did not write by their own will, but they wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Bible is the very word of God. Calvin's comments on 2 Timothy 3.16 give an admirable summary of the Christian view of inspiration. Quote, we know that God hath spoken to us, and are fully convinced that the prophets did not speak at their own suggestion, but that, being the organs of the Holy Spirit, they only uttered what they had been commissioned from heaven to declare. The law and the prophets are not a doctrine delivered according to the will and pleasure of men, but dictated by the Holy Spirit. End quote. The inspiration of the Bible reaches to every part of Scripture and to the very words of Scripture. The doctrine of the Church is that inspiration is verbal, i.e., extends to the actual words, and it is plenary, i.e., extends to every word and to all parts. Every part and every word of the Bible is directly given by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul teaches the verbal nature of inspiration when he says, Which things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.13 In this verse, Paul declares that he and the other apostles speak the very words given to them by the Spirit of God. The doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration is denied by what is known as the conceptual or dynamic view of inspiration. This view of inspiration contends that God's revelation in Scripture is limited to the doctrines and concepts contained therein and does not extend to the actual words of the text. The proponents of this view claim that God only gave the writers of Scripture the thoughts and concepts. He wanted to make known and then allowed the writers to express those ideas in whatever words they might choose. 
Accordingly, the conceptual view teaches that the actual words used in the Bible are not essential to our faith, only the ideas or doctrines are necessary. Therefore, according to this view, men are bound only to what the Bible intends to teach, and not the words that the apostles and prophets actually used. The conceptual or dynamic view of inspiration is surely an error. Aside from the obvious fact that thoughts and ideas must of necessity be communicated by the medium of words, the explicit claim of the authority of Scripture is that God has revealed his words to them. Jeremiah says, Then the Lord put forth his hand, and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Jeremiah 1.9 The prophets did not claim that the thoughts of the Lord came unto them, but that the word of the Lord was given to them. As noted above, 1 Corinthians 2.13 clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit gave the apostles the actual words that they were to write. Furthermore, the scripture contains a warning against tampering with the words of scripture. Deuteronomy 12.28.32 Revelation 22.18-19 It should also be noted that in the Bible, the entire argument in a passage is often based on a single word, or even on a single letter. Matthew 22.32 Galatians 3.16 The conceptual view of inspiration is squarely at odds with these passages and cannot be defended from Scripture. It has been advanced to explain the human element in Scripture, and what its proponents thought were errors in Scripture. It reduces the Bible to a book of inspired ideas communicated to us by uninspired words. The doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration is the first major standard for judging English Bible translations. It teaches that the words of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures were given by inspiration of God. It points to the fact that translators must focus on the word as the basic unit of translation, since the word is the basic unit of inspiration. In the second section of this book, we will see that the doctrine of verbal inspiration is decisive in judging between the competing translation theories of dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. A faithful and trustworthy English version of the Bible must be based on a theory of practice of translation that gives full weight to the doctrine of verbal inspiration, a doctrine that teaches us that every word of Scripture is important and to be handled with utmost care. The Doctrine of Providential Preservation Of equal importance in judging English versions is the doctrine of the divine providential preservation of Scripture. This doctrine is expressed clearly in the Westminster Confession when it states that the inspired Hebrew and Greek scriptures have been, quote, by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, end quote. The doctrine of inspiration demands the corollary doctrine of divine preservation. Both of these doctrines are taught in scripture, and both are essential to our faith. God not only inspired his word, but he has also providentially preserved it so that his word has not passed away, but has been kept in its essential purity throughout all generations. The relationship between inspiration and preservation is well stated by Edward Hills. Quote, if the doctrine of the divine inspiration of the Old and New Testament is a true doctrine, the doctrine of the providential preservation of the scriptures must also be a true doctrine. It must be that down through the centuries, God has exercised a special providential control over the copying of the scriptures and the preservation and use of the copies, 
so that trustworthy representatives of the original text have been available to God's people in every age. God must have done this, for if he gave the scriptures to his church by inspiration as the perfect and final revelation of his will, then it is obvious that he would not allow this revelation to disappear or undergo any alteration of its fundamental character. End quote. Without God's providential preservation of the scriptures, the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration would be virtually meaningless. For apart from preservation, we could not be sure that we have the words of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures, which are the foundation of our faith and the basis of our English translations, in their essential purity after thousands of years of copying and transmission. What good is an originally inspired Bible if all that we now possess are corrupt and misleading editions of the Greek and Hebrew text? The doctrine of preservation removes these doubts, and with Owen we are able to affirm that, quote, The whole word of God, and every letter and tittle, as given from him by inspiration, is preserved without corruption. End quote. The fact that God, by his singular care and providence, has kept his word pure in all ages, is clearly taught in the following scriptures. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them for this generation forever. Psalm 12, 6-7 Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm one nineteen eighty nine. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Psalm one nineteen one sixty. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Isaiah 40, 8 For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Matthew five eighteen. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Matthew twenty four thirty five. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. 1 Peter 1, 23-25 the doctrine set forth in these scriptures brings great assurance to us that God has kept the original Hebrew and Greek texts of Scripture in their essential purity down throughout history. By faith we know that God has preserved his word for us in the existing manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, which are the basis for our English Bibles. As Turretin says, the chief reason we believe in the integrity of the scriptures and the purity of the original sources, quote, is the providence of God, who, as he wished to provide for our faith by inspiring the sacred writers as to what they should write, and by preserving the scriptures against the attempts of enemies who have left nothing untried that they might destroy them, so he should keep them pure and uncorrupted, in order that our faith might always have a firm foundation." The doctrine of the providential preservation of the scriptures is the second major standard for judging English Bible translations, and it is a very important standard, for it enables us to determine the proper Hebrew and Greek texts that ought to form the basis for our translations. 
A faithful and trustworthy English version of the Bible must rest upon editions of the original Hebrew and Greek texts that are determined in full accord with the doctrine of providential preservation. In the third section of this book, we will apply this standard to the current controversy over which is the best original text, the modern critical text, or the traditional text of Holy Scripture. The use of the doctrinal standards of verbal inspiration and of providential preservation will enable the Church to recognize those translations that are to be considered trustworthy. These standards will make it possible for us to cut through all of the present confusion concerning Bible versions and to get to the heart of the issue. Having, therefore, laid the doctrinal foundation for evaluating English translations of the Scriptures, let us now apply these doctrinal standards to the two most important factors that go into making a translation of the Bible into English. Chapter 2 The Standard for Judging English Bible Translations Applied Part 1 Translation Philosophy the debate over which is the best English version ultimately revolves around the two primary elements that are necessary to produce a translation of the Bible. The first element is that of translation philosophy, and the second is that of the underlying Greek and Hebrew texts. These two components provide the basis for all English translations of Holy Scripture. The purpose of this chapter, and the next, is to examine the different views of translation theory and textual criticism, i.e., the method of establishing the true original text, and to determine which views are in accord with the doctrinal standards of verbal inspiration and providential preservation. If a translation is based on a theologically sound philosophy of translation, and a Hebrew and Greek text that is established according to sound theological principles, and if the work is carried out with competence, then it follows that such a translation ought to be a trustworthy representation of the authentic Word of God. Translation Philosophies In the final analysis, there are really only two approaches to the issue of translation theory. That is, there are fundamentally only two philosophies of translation. The difference between the two is not simply a difference of degree, but rather an essential difference of kind. These two differing philosophies have been referred to by various descriptive labels, literal versus paraphrase, word for word versus thought for thought, form-oriented versus content-oriented, formal equivalence versus dynamic equivalence. For the purpose of this study, we will refer to these differing approaches to translations as the formal equivalence method, henceforth FE, and the dynamic equivalence method, henceforth DE. It is important that we understand that the difference in translation philosophy is not simply of academic interest to translators. Since FE and DE represent divergent approaches to translation, they produce noticeably different versions of the Bible in English. Divergent philosophies, presuppositions, lead to different results. A reader of the Bible in English will use a Bible that was translated according to FE or DE. Therefore, Christians cannot be neutral on the issue of translation philosophy, for it affects their personal access to the true Word of God in English. The Formal Equivalent Translation A FE translation seeks to be a literal translation, that is, it seeks to be as literal as possible, 
The meaning of the word literal will therefore assist us in understanding the philosophy of F.E. Literal comes from the Latin word litera, which means letter. A literal translation is concerned with the very letters, i.e., the actual words formed by the letters that are to be translated, and seeks to follow and represent in translation the extant words of the original text. Therefore, in the F.E. method, the basic unit of translation is the word. Accordingly, F.E. is a word-for-word translation. This means that F.E. seeks to translate each Hebrew and Greek word into its closest English equivalent. In F.E. translations, the translator attempts to parallel as closely as possible the wordings and grammatical structure of the original Hebrew and Greek. He seeks to render nouns by nouns, verbs by verbs, etc. Martin gives the following explanation of the F.E. method of translation. Quote, With this philosophical orientation, the translator is concerned that the elements of the finished translation match as closely as possible the elements of the original text. He is concerned that paragraph corresponds to paragraph, sentence to sentence, clause to clause, phrase to phrase, and word to word. The formal equivalence philosophy, or method of translating, attempts to say what the original text says by retaining how it says it as far as English grammar allows. Although clear English expression does not always allow the formal equivalence translator to do so, he tries not to adjust the idioms which the original writer used. Rather, he attempts to render them more or less literally. End quote. As Martin points out, Effie is not only concerned with what God said in the original, but also with how he said it. This is because the form of the text is part of the transfer of meaning. Therefore, a F.E. translation puts its greatest emphasis on the grammatical and literary form of the original Hebrew and Greek and seeks to make the English conform as closely as possible to the original. This commitment to the form of the Hebrew and Greek is due to the fact, as Van Bruggen explains, quote, The Bible was composed in certain forms. Some passages were written in the form of prophecies, some songs, some letters, some narratives. There are also various forms within the smaller language units of Scripture. Paragraphs, sentences, dependent and independent clauses, and prepositional phrases. By faithfulness to form, it is meant that a reliable translation must render these forms as closely to the way they are in the original as possible. Without such faithfulness to form, the message of Scripture can be weakened or even lost. Because of its commitment to the form of the biblical text, a F.E. translation is, in essence, biblical English. End quote. All translation involves some degree of interpretation. However, in the F.E. method, the element of interpretation is deliberately kept to a minimum. In F.E., the role of the translator is not that of an exegete who is interpreting the Bible for the church. Rather, the proper role of the translator is to give the church an accurate translation upon which it may do exegesis. The F.E. view of interpretation and translation is well stated by Thomas. Quote, In any work that is precisely called a translation, interpretation should be kept to a minimum. 
Otherwise, the role of the expositor is usurped, and the work becomes a commentary on the meaning of the text, not a translation into the closest equivalent of the receptor language. Commentaries are much needed, but it is a mistake to assume that a translation can function in that role without ceasing to be a translation. It is not the translator's job to mediate between God's word and modern culture, as the commentator and the expositor does. End quote. It is important to understand that the F.E. method of translation does not advocate an absolutely literal translation. For there are elements of Hebrew and Greek that have no formal equivalent in English. A strictly literal translation would be, at times, nearly unintelligible to English readers. Therefore, those committed to F.E. in translation do not believe that the translator is always bound to the form, but only that the translator should always make a serious attempt to retain the form as much as possible. A F.E. translation strives to be as literal as possible. The primary examples of English F.E. translations are the Authorized Version, the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the New King James Version. The Dynamic Equivalent Translation A DE translation does not seek to be a literal translation of the original text of Scripture. In DE, the primary concern of the translator regarding the modern reader is to convey the meaning of the original rather than to transfer the words of the original. According to the presuppositions of this method, the dynamic is in the meaning of the text and not in the words or grammatical form of the text. In fact, the form is not only seen as secondary, it is often regarded as a serious barrier to communication. Therefore, in DE, the focus of the translator is on the intent of the biblical writer and not on the form of the biblical text. DE is a content-oriented translation rather than a form-oriented translation. The basic unit to be translated is not the word, but the thought. Accordingly, DE is a thought-for-thought translation. The goal of DE is not to give the modern reader a text that reproduces the form of the original text. Rather, the aim is to produce a response to the text and the modern reader equivalent to the reaction of the original hearers to the same text. Glassman explains the DE method. Quote, what it means is that one tries to produce the reader or hearer in the receptor language the same reaction to the message that the original author sought to produce in the immediate readers or listeners. It assumes that the original message was natural and meaningful, and that the grammatical structure and words used were not discouragingly difficult, but that people used them in their everyday lives. End quote. Since the goal is equivalence of response, the DE translator must give his primary emphasis and translation to the form of modern English. The translator is under no obligation to retain the form of the original Hebrew and Greek because such forms will sound strange and unnatural to modern man. According to the DE method, the English Bible must be in language that will communicate the meaning of Scripture in an easy and natural way. Therefore, the Bible should be translated into everyday language of the common people. The heart of the DE method of translating is the process of analysis, transfer, and restructuring. It is by this procedure that the translator is able to convey the meaning of the original Greek and Hebrew to modern man.
To achieve a DE translation, the translator must first analyze or interpret the original text to determine what the words meant to those who first heard them. The translator must know the proper interpretation of the text before he can translate it. Next, the translator has to transfer the meaning to today's reader. Transfer is a subjective process that takes place in the mind of the translator as he struggles to bridge the gap between the language and culture of the biblical text and the language and culture of the modern English reader. The translator must decide on the best way to state the meaning of the original so that it will readily communicate to contemporary readers. Finally, the translator must restructure in his translation, the form of the original so that he will naturally transfer the whole content of the message to his readers. This threefold process of analysis, transfer, and restructuring is clearly expressed in the preface of the today's English version of the American Bible Society. Quote, the primary concern of the translators has been to provide a faithful translation of the meaning of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. Their first task was to understand correctly the meaning of the original. After ascertaining as accurately as possible the meaning of the original, the translator's next task was to express that meaning in a manner and form easily understood by the readers. Every effort has been made to use language that is natural, clear, simple, and unambiguous. Consequently, there has been no attempt to reproduce in English the parts of speech, sentence structure, word order, and grammatical devices of the original languages. End quote. The very same process of DE is evident in the translation philosophy of the New International Version. Goddard, who served on the NIV Committee of Bible Translation, explains this philosophy as it was set down in the NIV Translator's Manual. Quote, the translators will seek to communicate to the reader what the inspired word was intended by God to communicate to those who read or heard it as originally given. No more and no less. They will approach a passage with this question. What was the writer saying in his language to the people of his day? They will then say, how do we express the same meaning in our language today? Sometimes equivalent words in the same sentence structure will suffice. At other times, they will prove inadequate. The translators, then, will not be tied to words, but to meaning. End quote. In essence, this DE method of analysis, transfer and restructuring, is a scientific paraphrase of the biblical text. It should be evident that the translation process of DE requires the translator to be much more than one who simply seeks to transfer the words of Scripture into their closest English equivalent. In this method, the translator must become an interpreter who transfers the meaning of Scripture to his readers. In DE, the translator assumes the role of an exegete and expositor. The primary examples of DE translations are the New English Bible, today's English Version, or the Good News Bible, the New International Version, the Jerusalem Bible, the Contemporary English Version, and the New Living Translation. Verbal Inspiration and Translation Philosophy The FE and DE philosophies present two very different approaches to the task of translation. Thus, they produce two very different types of English Bibles. FE makes the word the basic unit of translation, while DE makes the thought the basic unit of translation. 
F.E. seeks to retain the grammatical form of the original, while D.E. is more than willing to set this form aside in favor of the form of contemporary English. F.E. is concerned to keep interpretation to a minimum, while D.E. makes interpretation the center of its method. How are we to judge between these two philosophies of translation? The only proper standard by which to judge between them is the Word of God, specifically the doctrine of verbal inspiration, for this doctrine bears directly on the issue of translation theory. Since the very words of Scripture have been inspired by God, not just the ideas or concepts of Scripture, it follows that this fact of verbal inspiration should be reflected in translation philosophy. If the word is the basic unit of inspiration, should not the word be the basic unit of translation? If God has been pleased to give to men his inspired words in the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures, should not the translator strive to transfer as closely as possible those very words into English? It is therefore evident that the F.E. method, which gives priority to translating the words and grammatical forms of Scripture into their nearest English equivalents, is in definite harmony with the doctrine of verbal inspiration. While on the other hand, it is apparent that the D.E. method, which focuses on transferring only the meaning or thought of the original, implicitly denies, at least in practice, the importance of verbal inspiration, and is really more consistent with the heretical view of conceptual inspiration. In order for the verbal and plenary inspiration of the Bible to be properly acknowledged in the work of translation, the primary unit of the translation must be the word, not just the idea. Any method of translation that departs from that commitment is in serious conflict with the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Plainly speaking, the formal equivalence method of translation is philosophically committed to regarding and guarding the individual words of the original text as the primary unit of translation. The dynamic equivalence method is not. If the philosophy of D.E. is not grounded on the doctrine of verbal inspiration, then what is it based on? According to Van Bruggen, the theory of D.E., quote, is related to a view of God, man, and the world closely associated with the modern philosophy and the sciences based upon it. Quote, is related to a view of God, man, and the world closely associated with modern philosophy and the sciences based upon it. End quote. And further, he states that the D.E., quote, translation theory owes its influence and effect to the blending of modern theological prejudices regarding the Bible with data borrowed from communication theory, cultural anthropology, and modern sociology, end quote. Therefore, the theory and practice of D.E. is built upon the sands of conceptual inspiration and modern and often humanistic science and philosophy, while F.E. has a firm foundation in the biblical doctrine of verbal inspiration. Consequently, when we apply the doctrine of verbal inspiration to the issue of translation philosophy, we come to the clear and definite conclusion that the only trustworthy versions of the Bible in English are those that are translated according to the practice of F.E., because D.E. is not based on sound scriptural principles and presuppositions, its practice in Bible translation leads to grave and serious consequences. On the one hand, it presents a translation that is really more of an interpretation. Thus, it often distorts God's word and frequently leaves the English reader with the word of man because the D.E. translator has wrongly interpreted the meaning of the original Hebrew or Greek. 
When a DE translator errs in his analysis of the text, he does not transfer God's inspired word to his readers, but only his own flawed understanding of the text. Edgar explains this serious defect of DE translations. Quote, the basic problem with such an approach to translation is that the reader is handed over, bound hand and foot, to the translator's interpretation without even a hint that it is merely the translator's interpretation. He thinks he is reading a translation of God's word, when actually he is only reading what the translator thinks God meant, stated in the way the translator prefers. There are numerous verses which are capable of differing interpretations. The reader, unless he can read Greek or Hebrew, does not know in a given verse whether he is reading a translation of God's word or the translator's commentary. If he can read Greek or Hebrew, however, he does not need a dynamic equivalent translation. If he cannot read Greek and Hebrew, he cannot really trust a dynamic equivalent translation for any serious Bible study, since he has no way to differentiate God's word from the translator's commentary. On the other hand, D.E. seriously undermines the Church's doctrine of verbal inspiration. D.E. in the Church's Bible translations is the first step to the heresy of conceptual or dynamic inspiration in the Church's doctrine. Will the crucial doctrine of verbal inspiration survive in a Church that promotes a translation that in practice denies it? As Martin warns, quote, where the dynamic method of translation is embraced, it is but one small step to the embracing of the dynamic view of inspiration as well. End quote. It is imperative that the Church vigorously defends and proclaims the doctrine of verbal inspiration in its preaching and creeds. But this in itself is not enough. The Church must also see the connection between its theology of inspiration and its philosophy of translation, lest it undermine the former by the latter. This is exactly what happens when an orthodox confessing church promotes the use of D.E. translations. Its orthodox creed says verbal inspiration, while its D.E. translation implies dynamic inspiration. Therefore, the church must not only preach the doctrine of verbal inspiration, it must also teach how this doctrine commends the translation philosophy of F.E., and then it must promote this doctrine by the public use of F.E. translations of Scripture. The standard of verbal inspiration settles the debate over translation philosophy. It clears the fog, scatters the claims of Bible publishers, and puts to rest all appeals based on personal preferences or ease of comprehension. The doctrine of verbal inspiration calls for the use of an English version that has been translated according to the philosophy of F.E. A wise Christian in an obedient church will hear and act accordingly. Chapter 3 the Standard for Judging English Bible Translations Applied Part 2. Textual Criticism Textual criticism is the discipline of establishing the true wording of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures. Textual criticism is necessary because we no longer possess the original autographs of the book of the Bible. What we do possess are handwritten copies of the original manuscripts, apographs, the task of textual criticism is to determine the true reading of the original text from these existing copies. The importance of textual criticism to Bible translation is obvious. If a translation is to be a faithful and trustworthy one, it must be based on an original text that accurately represents what the inspired authors of Scripture actually wrote. 
a translator who works from inferior Hebrew and Greek texts, regardless of his skill, can only produce an inferior translation. At present, there is yet an essential and widespread agreement on the basic text of the Hebrew Old Testament, henceforth OT. Most would agree to the fact that the Masoretic text represents the true OT text. However, there is a serious difference over what constitutes the true text of the New Testament, henceforth NT. There are basically two approaches to the task of NT textual criticism, and this has resulted in there being essentially two different printed texts of the NT. The one printed text is the modern critical text, hereafter MCT, which is currently represented in the United Bible Society's 4th edition of the Greek New Testament and the Nessel-Allen 27th edition of Novum Testamentum Graeci. The other printed text represents the traditional NT text, and it is called the Textus Receptus, hereafter TR, or the Received Text. The differences between these printed texts are, in places, substantial and serious. Therefore, since there is a difference in the printed text of the NT, and since our English translations of the NT are based on either the TR or the MCT, it is essential that we establish which text is the best and most trustworthy edition of the Greek NT. If the MCT text is the best representation of the original autographs, then those versions that are translated from the MCT should be considered superior to those of the TR. However, if the reverse is the case, then those versions translated from the TR must be regarded as the best representatives of the Word of God in English. In the following portion of this book, we will take a brief look at the TR and MCT, and then apply the doctrinal standard of providential preservation so that we might judge between them. The Textus Receptus The TR is a printed edition of what is known as the Byzantine Text. The name Byzantine is applied to this text because it is the text type found in the family of NT Greek manuscripts that were used, transmitted, and preserved by the Eastern Greek-speaking Church. Because it was handed down and preserved by the Church, it is also referred to as the traditional text or the ecclesiastical text. This text was in continuous use in the Greek Church from at least the 4th century until the time of the Reformation, when Erasmus made this text the basis for the first printed edition of the Greek NT. The TR represents the text type that is found in the vast majority of the extant Greek manuscripts. Approximately 85-90% to 90% contain this text type. And this is why it is often referred to as the majority text. Most of the Byzantine manuscripts are of a relatively late date, 9th to 14th centuries. However, a few facts need to be noted regarding this. Firstly, the fact that the Byzantine manuscripts are of a late date says nothing in itself concerning the age of the text in these manuscripts. As Van Bruggen explains, quote, One of the first things a student must learn regarding the textual history is the distinction between the age of the manuscript and the age of the text offered in that manuscript. A rather young manuscript can give a very old type of text. End quote. Therefore, quote, the fact that this text form is known to us via later manuscripts is as such no proof for a late text type. End quote. Secondly, even the strongest critics of the Byzantine text believe that the age of this text type goes back to the end of the 3rd or the beginning of the 4th century. 
Thirdly, it has been demonstrated that many of the distinct readings of the Byzantine text, which were at one time considered to be evidence for the lateness of this text type, are attested to in the papyri manuscripts of the 2nd and 3rd century. The Byzantine text type was the first Greek text to appear in a printed edition. Erasmus, using manuscripts of the Byzantine textual family, edited and published his Greek NT in 1516. Between 1519 and 1535, Erasmus published four more editions of the Greek NT. After him, Robert Stephanus published four editions of the Greek NT, 1546 to 1551. The text of these editions was essentially the same as that of Erasmus. Theodore Beza, the successor of Calvin, produced ten editions of the Greek NT during his lifetime, 1519-1605. Beza's editions agreed closely with those of Erasmus and Stephanus. In 1633, the Elzevir brothers published their second edition of the Greek NT. The text basically follows that of Beza's editions, and it was in the preface of this edition that the phrase Textus Receptus was first applied to the printed form of the Byzantine text. The Elzevir brothers told their readers, quote, You have therefore the text now received by all, in which we give nothing altered or corrupted. End quote. Therefore, the TR is that printed text of the Byzantine text type that is based on the editorial labors of Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. The TR came to be recognized by all Protestants as the authentic NT text. The differences between the various editions of the TR are very minor. Therefore, the TR is a long-established text that is based on the text type contained in the great majority of the manuscripts. The traditional text of the Greek NT, as embodied in the TR, is a very stable text. It is a consensus text that has served as the Protestant canonical standard. The importance of the TR to the English-speaking church is that the TR formed the basis of the most widely used and influential English version ever, namely, the authorized King James Version of 1611. All English versions from 1881 onward have rejected the TR and have been translated from some edition of the MCT. The only exception to this is the New King James Version, which is based on the TR. The Modern Critical Text The MCT represents a printed Greek text that is the result of the work of textual scholars reaching from Griesbach, 1775, to Nessel Aland, 1979. The MCT is an eclectic text. This means that it is a text that has been determined by scholars who employ certain canons, rules of textual criticism, on a variant-by-variant basis to decide on which reading among the available witnesses is to be considered the true reading of the NT text. Therefore, the work of the textual critic is centered in determining the MCT. It is through the skill of the textual scholar in weighing the internal and external evidence that the text of the NT is established. Consequently, the current printed form of the MCT, the UBS 4th edition, UBS 4, and the Nessel Allen 27th edition, NA 27, was decided by a committee of five textual scholars. The MCT, being an eclectic text, is not actually the text of any one textual tradition or family. Rather, it combines in one new text readings that were originally found in the extant manuscripts of various text types. Nevertheless, the textual critics who have determined the MCT gives the greatest weight to the readings found in the Alexandrian family of manuscripts. 
These Alexandrian texts are early manuscripts, second to fourth centuries, that were discovered within the last two hundred years. Textual scholars hailed their discovery as a return to a much closer form of the original NT text than the one preserved in the Byzantine text. Consequently, the traditional NT text, the TR, which has been in constant use in the Church for over a thousand years, was condemned as being a corrupt and secondary form of the text of the NT. Due to this nearly total rejection of the value of the Byzantine text as a witness to the original autographs, the scholars have established the MCT on the basis of only 10-15% to of the available manuscripts. Yet they justify this potentially embarrassing fact by claiming that they are using the oldest and best manuscripts. Since the MCT is a text produced by textual critics employing an eclectic method, the text of the MCT is fluid and always open to change. As new and better theories of the text are developed and new manuscripts are discovered, the MCT will have to be changed to accommodate these developments. The MCT, due to the presuppositions of modern textual criticism, will undoubtedly undergo many, and perhaps even radical, revisions in the future. The importance of the current MCT and its earlier additions to English Bible students is that these have formed the basis of the NT translations of all English versions since 1881, except the NKJV. This means, for example, that the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the Today's English Version, the New International Version, and the English Standard Version are all translated from the eclectic MCT. Providential Preservation and Textual Criticism The TR and the MCT presents texts of the Greek NT that differ significantly in certain places. The question that must be faced by those who love the Word of God is this. Which of these two printed forms of the text best preserves the true and original text of the NT? Regarding our discussion of English versions, this is a crucial question, for a trustworthy version of the NT must be translated from the authentic NT Greek text. But how are we to decide this question? How can we properly judge between the TR and the MCT? What standard can we apply that will settle this dispute concerning the text of the NT? As Christians, the starting point for all of our thinking for every question in life must be the revealed doctrines of Holy Scripture. All facts must be interpreted in the light of Scripture. Therefore, the consistently Christian approach to the issue of the NT text is to interpret the facts concerning the text in light of the doctrinal standards of verbal inspiration and, especially, providential preservation. The Greek text that is to be considered the authentic word of God is the text that bears the definite and consistent marks of being the providentially preserved text. Let us now judge the MCT and the TR by the standard of God's revealed truth so that we can determine which ought to be considered the genuine text of Scripture. The Textus Receptus and Providential Preservation The TR is the Greek text that bears the marks of being the providentially preserved text of the NT. If we believe that divine providence is controlling the history and transmission of the inspired text of the NT so that it is kept pure in all ages, then the logic of faith leads us to embrace the TR confidently as the authentic representation of the original autographic text of the NT. Let us note these unmistakable evidences of divine preservation exhibited by the TR. First, the TR is the text that is preserved in the vast majority of existing Greek manuscripts, 85 to 90 percent. 
In these thousands of manuscripts, Bergen reminds us, God, in his wisdom, has provided the Church with abundant external evidence, quote, for the establishment of the truth of his written word, end quote. But of equal importance with the truth of the large predominance of the text type found in the TR is the reason why this text type appears in the great majority of extant manuscripts. The text type represented in the TR is the text that was preserved and transmitted to us by the usage of the Church. And it was the text used by the Church because it was the text recognized by the Church as being the authentic Word of God. The text of the TR is not, therefore, based on the theories and votes of textual scholars, but upon the clear and consistent testimony of the great majority of existing Greek manuscripts, manuscripts that were preserved for us because of their usage and acceptance by the Greek-speaking Church. Second, the TR presents a text of the NT that is ancient and theologically superior to the MCT. It is also a text that is noted for its lucidity and completeness, and entirely blameless on either literary or religious grounds as regards vulgarized or unworthy dictation. In other words, the TR is an ancient text of the highest quality. Third, the TR has been used continuously by the Church from the days of the early Church until today. Because the text type reflected in the TR was handed down and preserved in the churches, it can rightly be called the church text. The TR represents the only anti-Greek text that has been in circulation and use in the church throughout the entire era of church history. The TR is the only form of the text that has been meaningfully available to the church in all ages. Fourth, the TR was the first printed form of the Greek NT to be published. Erasmus produced the first edition in 1516 using manuscripts of the Byzantine traditional text. The TR was printed in approximately 160 editions over the next 150 years, with each edition printing substantially the same text. The TR was the only printed Greek NT available until Lachman produced the first of his two editions of the NT in 1831. Fifth, and of most special importance to Protestants, the TR was the NT text used by God to launch the Reformation with its cry of sola scriptura. As Van Bruggen notes, quote, The churches of the Great Reformation deliberately adopted this ancient text when they took the Greek text as starting point again. End quote. The TR provided the textual foundation for the preaching, theology, creeds, and all the Bible translations of the Reformation. William Tyndale used the TR for the first translation of the Greek NT into English. Sixth, the TR was recognized by all the Protestant churches as the true, infallible, divinely preserved NT text. This is why it came to be called the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text. The Byzantine text that had been in use in the Greek church was received by the Reformation churches as the inspired word of God. Thus, this text served as the Protestant canonical standard, a position it continued to hold for three centuries. Because of the doctrines of inspiration and preservation, the Reformation Church believed that God had delivered his infallible word to them in the TR. In his defense of the TR against those who sought to undermine its authority, Owen, the great Puritan theologian, expressed his faith in, quote, "...the purity in the present original copies of Scripture." or rather, copies in the original languages, which the Church of God doth now and hath for many ages enjoyed as her chiefest treasure. End quote. 
Turretin, one of the greatest of the Protestant scholastic theologians, defended the Masoretic text and the TR against the Papists, who sought to undermine the doctrine of Sola Scriptura by their claims that the original texts of Scripture were so corrupt that the authority of the Roman Church and her Latin Vulgate is all that remains. In response to this attack on the authority of Scripture, Turretin argued from Scripture that the doctrines of inspiration and preservation assure us that the integrity of the original sources cannot be questioned. Turretin stated the view of the Protestant Church concerning the purity of the Masoretic text and the TR. Quote, by the original text, we do not mean the autographs, written by the hand of Moses, of the prophets, and of the apostles, which certainly do not now exist. We mean their apographs, which are so called because they set forth to us the word of God in the very words of those who wrote under the immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit. End quote. The Helvetic Formula Consensus, 1675, which has been called the epitome of Reformed scholastic theology, upheld the doctrine of inspiration and preservation, and therefore declared the Masoretic OT text and the TR, quote, the sole and complete rule of our faith and practice. End quote. And the most excellent doctrinal confession to come out of the Reformation, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646, affirmed on the basis of the doctrine of inspiration and preservation that the Masoretic text and the TR were the authentic word of God. Seventh, and of particular significance to English-speaking Christians, the TR was the text used by the translators of the Authorized Version, KJV. This English version came to be recognized as the standard English version, and it has done more to shape the English church than all the other versions combined. How do we account for all these facts concerning the TR? How should we interpret the evidence, and what conclusion should we draw? There is really only one conclusion for the Christian, who believes in the doctrine that God, by his singular care and providence, has kept his word pure in all ages. The logic of faith leads to the definite judgment that the TR is the true, providentially preserved text of the NT. The Modern Critical Text and Providential Preservation The MCT does not fare well when scrutinized by the doctrinal standard of divine preservation. The MCT does not bear the marks of God's providential preservation, but rather it shows signs of human fabrication by textual critics. The doctrine of preservation in the MCT clearly are at odds with one another. Is it possible to believe in the orthodox doctrine of preservation and to believe that the MCT is that divinely preserved text? Well, if divine preservation is a true doctrine, and if the MCT is the true text, then we must believe that God's providence caused the worst and most depraved form of the Greek NT i.e., the TR, for so the proponents of the MCT describe it, to be the text preserved in the overwhelming majority of the extant manuscripts, to be the text that is theologically superior, to be the text that has been in continuous use in the Church, to be the text that was first printed and published, to be the text that provided the foundation for the Protestant Reformation, to be the text that achieved canonical status, and to be the text that was used in the most influential English version of all time. On the other hand, if the MCT is the true text, we are bound to hold that by God's singular care and providence, the genuine text of the NT was the text preserved in only a handful of existing manuscripts, was the text that was theologically inferior, was the text that was lost to the Church for over a thousand years, and was the text that was lost to the Church for over a thousand years. 
and was the text restored to the Church by the use of Enlightenment naturalistic textual critical principles and the majority vote of scholars. The point is simply this. While the history of facts of the TR are easily explained by reference to the doctrine of preservation, the history and facts concerning the MCT are not so easily explained. Perhaps this is why the defenders of the MCT do not rely on the doctrine of preservation in any way to establish the validity of their text. In fact, they seem very annoyed and even indignant that someone would be so unscholarly as to appeal to biblical theology in defense of the biblical text. The advocates of the MCT appeal only to the evidence and to the methods of modern textual criticism. The standpoint of the modern critic is that a theological a priori has no place in textual criticism. But the rejection of the doctrine of preservation in favor of the neutral scientific principles of textual criticism leads to serious consequences for the Church. The first danger associated with the MCT and its naturalistic principles is that, having rejected the traditional text of Scripture that was handed down by the Church and confirmed by centuries of usage by believers, it empowers a handful of textual scholars to determine a new text of Scripture for the Church. Because of the prepositions of the modern critics, the text of centuries is replaced by the text of yesterday and a few scholars claim for themselves the authority to give the Church a better anti-text. R. J. Rushduni wisely states, quote, Consider what happens when the received text is set aside, and scholars give us the reconstruction of the text. The truth of revelation has thereby passed from the hand of God into the hands of men. Scholars then establish the true reading in terms of their presuppositions. The denial of the received text enables the scholar to play God over God. The determination of the correct word is now a scholar's province and task. The Holy Spirit is no longer the giver and preserver of the biblical text. It is the scholar, the textual scholar. Rushduni continues, quote, the historic belief of Christians has been that the God who gave the word preserved the word. This is the doctrine of the preservation of the word of God. The word gives the direct and authentic word of God. Now preservation has a new meaning. The biblical scholars hold that theirs is a word of restoration, so that preservation requires their restorative word. The triune God is replaced by scholarly men. Thus, the denial of the received text is no small matter. It rests on a religious revolution with far-reaching implications. This means that many men of Reformed and Arminian theologies, who profess the orthodox doctrines of their communions, hold to a position which undermines their faith. It should not surprise us that seminaries and biblical scholars have for generations led their churches into various forms of humanism. By playing God over God, they begin with the essence of original sin and humanism man as his own God, determining the validity of everything, including the word of God, for himself. Genesis 3.15. In effect, they say, Yea, hath God said, Genesis 3.1, of the best scripture. The issue of the received text is thus no small matter, nor one of academic concern only. The faith is at stake. End quote. The second danger associated with the MCT is that the rationalistic Enlightenment principles of modern textual criticism led to skepticism concerning the text of Scripture. 
because the task of establishing the true N.T. text is not approached from the perspective of faith and God's providential preservation of his word, but only from the perspective of neutral science and belief, there can never be any certainty concerning the true text of Scripture. Since the MCT is determined by the reason of autonomous man, it suffers the same fate that attends all human inquiry into knowledge that sets the authority of man's reason over the authority of Scripture. Uncertainty and Relativism The text of Scripture is now relative to the most recent theories and changing opinions of textual scholars. The sea of uncertainty in which the naturalistic critics swim is illustrated in the words of Eldon J. App. Quote, one response to the fact that our popular critical texts are still so close to that of Westcott Hort might be that the kind of text arrived at by them and supported so widely by subsequent criticism is in fact, and without question, the best attainable N.T. text. Yet every textual critic knows that this similarity of text indicates, rather, that we have made little progress in textual theory since Westcott Hort that we simply do not know how to make a definitive determination as to what the best text is, that we do not have a clear picture of the transmission and alteration of the text in the first few centuries, and, accordingly, that the Westcott-Hort kind of text has maintained its dominant position largely by default. End quote. The inherent skepticism of modern textual criticism is also exemplified in Solon's definition of textual criticism. The function and purpose of T.C., textual criticism, is of a dual nature. One, to reconstruct the original wording of the biblical text. And two, to establish the history of the transmission of the text through the centuries. The first of these two goals is in fact hypothetical and unattainable. In every instance, the original copy, called autograph of the books of the Bible, is lost. Hence, every reconstruction is a matter of conjecture. End quote. Those who use the MCT or an English version based on the MCT are, by that use, giving assent to this skepticism concerning the NT text. They are using a NT that is the result of scholarly conjecture, and are, in effect, agreeing that the authentic NT text has not been providentially preserved in the TR. Thus, all that they can hope for is a hypothetical reconstruction of the text by men. Those who reject the logic of faith and textual matters, and the TR to which it leads, are left with a NT text that is tentative, uncertain, and relative to the changing opinions of textual scholars. Hence, they are often left with the nagging question concerning their NT text. Hath God said? Those who rely on the MCT willingly exchange the TR, which has been received for centuries by the Church as the verbally inspired Word of God possessing canonical authority, for the text of yesterday that was constructed by scholars who can only say that the new text represents the best that can be achieved in the present state of knowledge. The truth is, the recent printed editions of the Greek New Testament, MCT, which we can buy, give a text which never existed as a manuscript of the New Testament. They are all reconstructions based on their editor's choice of readings from manuscripts they had at their disposal or which they elected to concentrate on. Conservative scholars who adhere to the MCT and the textual critical principles it is based upon often seek to hide the skepticism inherent in their position by saying that no major doctrine is affected by the rejection of the TR in favor of the MCT. This, however, is simply not true. 
Doctrine is affected, though it may be that no doctrine is entirely lost, when the TR is set aside on account of the MCT. Our ability to defend the faith is weakened when we use the MCT and its theologically inferior text. But, even more important than this, the doctrines of verbal inspiration and providential preservation are undermined dangerously by the MCT and its textual principles. The doctrine of verbal inspiration loses its full significance when it is said that no one can ever be sure about the actual wording of the original, that we must be content only to know that no essential doctrine has been lost. It seems, then, according to the scholars who promote the MCT, that we cannot claim verbal inspiration for our present NT text, but that we can only claim that its teaching or concepts are inspired. Owen, in answer to those who would only defend the present knowledge of the NT text to the point of saying that it preserves the essential doctrines of Scripture, says, quote, but to depress the sacred truth of the originals into a condition as wherein it should stand in need of this apology will at length be found a work and becoming a Christian Protestant divine. Besides the injury done hereby to the providence of God towards his church and care of his word, it will not be found so easy a matter, upon a supposition of such corruption in the originals as it pleaded for, to evince unquestionably that the whole saving doctrine itself, as first given out from God, continues entire and uncorrupt. The nature of this doctrine is such that there is no other principle or means of its discovery, no other rule or measure of judging and determining anything about or concerning it, but only the writing from whence it is taken, it being wholly divine revelation, and the revelation being expressed only in that writing. Upon any corruption, then, supposed therein, there is no means of rectifying it, in things of pure revelation, whose knowledge depends solely on their revelation, it is not enough to satisfy us that the doctrines are preserved entire. Every tittle and iota in the word of God must come under our care and consideration, as being, as such, from God. End quote. The doctrinal standard of the divine providential preservation of the word of God leads us to reject the MCT as an often corrupt and untrustworthy representation of the divinely inspired original Greek NT and causes us to accept confidently the TR as the authentic canonical text of the NT scriptures. Therefore, only those English versions that are based on the Masoretic text in the OT and the TR in the NT are to be considered trustworthy translations of the word of God. Any English version that is based on texts other than these traditional texts must be judged as a translation that often corrupts the word of God and undermines the church's faith in the providence of God and the present purity of our scripture texts. Conclusion The purpose of this book has been to demonstrate that there is an objective and authoritative standard that will enable the English-speaking church to judge between the many English versions and determine the most faithful and trustworthy English translation of Holy Scripture. In the first section of the book, this standard was defined as being the biblical doctrines that directly bear on the issues of Bible translation. As in all things, the church's rule must ever be sola scriptura. The two major doctrines that ought to serve as the standard for judging translations were identified as being the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration and the doctrine of providential preservation. In the second and third part of the book, we apply these doctrines to the issues of translation, 
philosophy, and textual criticism, and concluded that only those versions translated according to the formal equivalence method and translated from the traditional texts of Holy Scripture, the Masoretic text in the OT, and the Textus Receptus in the NT, are to be considered faithful and reliable English versions. It only remains for us to apply these conclusions to specific English versions and to determine which version is the best and most trustworthy English version available. According to the doctrinal standards of verbal inspiration and providential preservation, it is evident that the following versions are relatively untrustworthy because they often misrepresent the original Hebrew and Greek and corrupt the Word of God. The American Standard Version, because it is based on the MCT. The Revised Standard Version, because it is based on the MCT. The American Standard Version, because it is based on the MCT. The Jerusalem Bible, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The New English Bible, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The New American Bible, because it is based on the MCT. The Living Bible, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The Today's English Version, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The Revised English Version, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The New International Version, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The New Revised Standard Version, because it is based on the MCT. The Contemporary English Version, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The God's Word Version, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The New Living Translation, because it is based on the MCT and DE. The English Standard Version, because it is based on the MCT. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, because it is based on the MCT. It should be noted that those versions that are based on both the MCT and DE must be judged as the least trustworthy of all. It is of particular importance to observe that the New International Version is judged to be one of the least trustworthy. Special notice is taken of the NIV because it is currently a very popular and best-selling English version. Many churches are adopting this version for their public worship services, as are many Christians for their personal use. This is truly an alarming development, and it demonstrates how far the English-speaking church has drifted from the doctrines of the Reformation. It is yet another evidence of the decline of the Church and of the increasing influence of modernism and liberalism in many of our evangelical and reformed churches. But which version is the best? Which version ought to be considered the standard English version? Which Bible should guide the English-speaking Church as it seeks to apply the whole Bible to the whole of life? The doctrinal standards of verbal inspiration and providential preservation lead to the conclusion that the authorized King James Version is the best and most trustworthy English version of Holy Scripture. The authorized version is firmly based on the traditional, providentially preserved original texts of Scripture, the Masoretic Text and the Textus Receptus, and it is an excellent formal equivalent translation. Therefore, it ought to be received as a true and faithful presentation of the Word of God in English. No other version can surpass or even match the authorized version's faithfulness to the form of the original, its quality English, its completeness, its loyalty to the traditional texts, its spirituality, its authoritativeness, and its ecclesiastical usage. Hill summarizes it well, quote, The King James Authorized Version is an accurate translation of the Textus Receptus. God has placed his stamp of approval on it through the long-continued usage of English-speaking believers.
Hence, it should be used and defended by Bible-believing Christians. End quote. The goal of this book has been to establish that there is a standard for judging between English versions. Hopefully, it has shown that personal preference, autonomy, as a normative standard in choosing a translation, is just as wrong and rebellious as personal preference as a normative standard in making ethical choices. Hills rightfully asks Christians, quote, Where, oh where, dear brother or sister, did you ever get the idea that it is up to you to decide which Bible version you will receive as God's holy word? End quote. For in regard to this decision, Quote, it has already been decided for you by the workings of God's special providence. If you ignore this providence and choose to adopt one of the modern versions, you will be taking the first step in the logic of unbelief. End quote. Regarding the issue of English Bible translations, the question, by what standard, goes to the very core of our faith. That is why it is such a vital question for today. The abandonment of the authorized version in favor of one of the modern versions is really a serious departure from the doctrines of verbal inspiration and providential preservation. It is, in the end, a departure from the Word of God, for those who use a modern version are using a version that has been influenced by the principles of modernism, and these principles often lead to a corrupting of Scripture and leave the Christian, in many places, with man's word instead of God's word. But those who use the authorized version can be confident that they have the authentic word of God in English. May it please God to return the English-speaking church to the use of the authorized version as the standard English Bible. If there is to be a new reformation among English-speaking people, it will need to begin with a return to the faith and theology of the Reformation and to the English Bible which that faith produced. The authorized version a superior F.E. translation of the verbally inspired and providentially preserved original text of Holy Scripture. Appendices Appendix 1. John Owen's Defense of the Traditional Texts John Owen's treatise of the integrity and purity of the Hebrew and Greek text of the Scripture is an important work that gives to the Church a strong theological defense of the Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus. The fact that the Discourse of Owen, 1616-1683, the preeminent Congregationalist Puritan theologian, is virtually unknown and unread in our day, even by Reformed Christians, is a keen indicator of the surrender of the Church to the principles of Enlightenment naturalistic textual criticism. To help remedy this shameful capitulation, to expose our readers to Owen's work, and to bolster the argument presented in the main body of the book, this appendix seeks to provide a general overview of Owen's valuable treatise. The immediate occasion for Owen's treatise was the publication of the Polyglot Bible, edited by Brian Walton in London, 1655-1657, that printed the original Hebrew and Greek text along with various ancient versions and translations, and included an appendix, volume 6, that listed all the variant readings of the New Testament that Walton and his helpers could amass. The larger context for understanding Owen's book is the attempt by the Roman Church to undermine and discredit the Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura by pointing to the variants in the existing Greek manuscripts as evidence that the Greek New Testament, the TR, was too corrupt to be considered authoritative. The goal of the papists was to pull down all confidence in the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures so that they could re-establish the authority of their church in the Latin Vulgate and thus derail the Reformation. Their chosen means to accomplish this nefarious end was the discipline of textual criticism. 
Owen's response to the polyglot of Walton, the Anglican and bitter foe of the Puritans, and to the Roman attack on Sola Scriptura, an attack that Walton's work implicitly supported, is very relevant to the assault on the authority of Scripture that is implicit in the methods and results of the modern Enlightenment practice of textual criticism. Owen believed that the starting point for the Christian in dealing with the question of the original text of Scripture is not to be found in the neutral text-critical principles determined by man's reason, but in the revealed doctrines of verbal inspiration and providential preservation. He lays the foundation for his discussion of textual criticism and for his defense of the purity of the original texts of Scripture that were considered the standard canonical text by the Protestant Church at that time i.e., the Masoretic Text and the TR, by saying, quote, The sum of what I am pleading for, as to the particular head to be vindicated, is that as the scripture of the Old and New Testament were immediately and entirely given out by God himself, his mind being in them represented unto us, without the least interveniency of such mediums and ways as were capable of giving change or alteration to the least iota or syllable, so, by his good and merciful providential dispensation, in his love to his word and church, his whole word, as first given out by him, is preserved unto us entire in the original languages, where, shining in its own beauty and luster, as also in all translations, so far as they faithfully represent the originals, it manifests as evidences unto the consciences of men, without other foreign help or assistance, its divine original and authority." End quote. Owen is clear on the matter of textual criticism. We must presuppose the inspiration and preservation of Scripture if we are to interpret the evidence aright. According to Owen, a theological a priori does not have a place in the textual criticism of the biblical text. Having stated his theological presuppositions, Owen immediately goes on to impress the importance of these doctrines to the Church. He says, quote, now, the several assertions or propositions contained in this position are to me such important truths that I shall not be blamed in the least by my own spirit, nor, I hope, by any others, in contending for them, judging them fundamental parts of the faith once delivered to the saints. And though some of them may seem to be less weighty than others, yet they are so concatenated in themselves that by the removal or destruction of any one of them, our interest in the others is utterly taken away." It will assuredly be granted that the persuasion of the coming forth of the word immediately from God, and the way pleaded for, is the foundation of all faith, hope, and obedience. By what, I pray, will it advantage us that God did so once deliver his word, if we are not assured also that the word so delivered hath been, by his special care and providence, preserved entire and uncorrupt unto us, or that it doth not evidence and manifest itself to be his word, being so preserved? Blessed, may we say, were the ages past, who received the word of God in its unquestionable power and purity, when it shone brightly in its own glorious native light, and was free from those defects and corruptions which, through the default of men in a long tract of time, it hath contracted. But for us, as we know not well where to lay a sure foundation of believing that this book, rather than any other, doth contain what is left unto us of that word of his." So it is impossible we should ever come to any certainty almost of any individual word or expression, whether it be from God or no. Far be it from the thoughts of any good man, that God, whose covenant with his church is that his word and spirit shall never depart from it, 
Isaiah 59.21, Matthew 5.18, 1 Peter 1.25, 1 Corinthians 11.23, Matthew 28.20, hath left it in uncertainties about the things that are the foundation of all that faith and obedience which he requires at our hands. End quote. After he establishes the theological framework for interpreting the evidence, Owen then expresses his horror that any Christian scholar would advance the notion that the transmission of the biblical text has come about in the same way as any other book. Owen's comments on this point are very instructive, because the idea that the Bible should be treated as any ordinary book in regard to its textual criticism, and that, therefore, the same neutral scientific principles should be applied, is at the heart of the Enlightenment method of textual criticism that reigns today among New Testament critics and biblical scholars. For Owen, the doctrine of preservation requires the recognition of the extraordinary manner in which the biblical text was translated. Owen contends that, quote, For the first transcribers of the original copies, and those who in succeeding ages have done the like work from them, whereby they have been propagated and continued down to us in a subserviency to the providence and promise of God, as is vainly charged by Morinus and Capellus, that they were all, or any of them, anamartetoi and theopnustoi, infallible and divinely inspired so that it was impossible for them in anything to mistake it is known it is granted that failings have been amongst them and that various lections readings or variants are from thence risen of which afterward religious care and diligence in their work with a due reverence of him with whom they had to do is all we ascribe unto them not to acknowledge these freely in them, without clear, unquestionable evidence to the contrary, is high uncharitableness, impiety, and ingratitude. This care and diligence, we say, in a subserviency to the promise and providence of God, hath produced the effect contended for. Nor is anything further necessary thereunto. On this account, to argue, as some do, from the miscarriages and mistakes of men, their obstinacy and negligence in transcribing the old heathen authors, Homer, Aristotle, Tully, we think it not charitable in a Christian, or any one that hath the least sense of the nature and importance of the word, or the care of God towards his church. Shall we think that men who wrote out books wherein themselves and others were not more concerned than it is possible for men to be in the writings of the persons mentioned, and others like them, had as much reason to be careful and diligent, and that they did as those who knew and considered that every letter and tittle that they were transcribing was part of the word of the great God, wherein the eternal concernment of their souls and souls of others did lie? Certainly, whatever may be looked for from the religious care of diligence of men lying a loving and careful aspect from the promise and providence of God may be justly expected from them who undertook that work. However, we are ready to own all their failings that can be proved. To assert, in this case without proof, is injurious. The Jews have a common saying among them, that to alter one letter of the law is no less sin than to set the whole world on fire and that we think that in writing it they took no more care than a man would do in writing out Aristotle or Plato, who for a very little portion of the world would willingly have done his endeavor to get both their works out of it. Considering that the word to be transcribed was every iota and tittle of it, the word of the great God, that that which was written, and as written, was proposed as his and from him, 
that if any failings were made, innumerable eyes of men, owning their eternal concernment to lie in that word, were open upon it to discover it, and thousands of copies were extant to try it by, and all this known and to and confessed by every one that undertook this work. It is no hard matter to prove their care and diligence to have outgone that of other common scribes of heathen authors. The truth is, they are prodigious things that are related of the exact diligence and reverential care of the ancient Jews in this work, especially when they entrusted a copy to be a rule for the trial and standard of other private copies. End quote. Owen draws his discussion on the transmission of the biblical text to a close by emphatically rejecting the view that the question of the history of the conveyance of the original texts is strictly a matter of historical investigation, and that the doctrine of providential preservation should be kept entirely out of the picture. He says, quote, It can then, with no color of probability, be asserted, which yet I find some learned men too free in granting, namely, that there hath the same fate attended the scripture in its transcription as hath done other books. Let me say without offence, this imagination, asserted on deliberation, seems to me to border on atheism. Surely the promise of God for the preservation of his word, with his love and care of his church, and whose faith and obedience that word of his is the only rule, requires other thoughts at our hands. End quote. Owen then sets down twelve propositions that describe the way in which he believed divine providence operated to ensure that the scripture was kept pure in all ages. Quote, 1. The providence of God in taking care of his word, which he hath magnified above all his name, and the most glorious product of his wisdom and goodness, his great concernment in his word answering his promise to this purpose. 2. The religious care of the church, I speak not of the Romish synagogue, to whom these oracles of God were committed. 3. The care of the first writers in giving out authentic copies of what they had received from God unto many, which might be rules to the first transcribers. 4. The multiplying copies to such a number that it was impossible any should corrupt them all, willingly or by negligence. 5. The preservation of the authentic copies, first in the Jewish synagogues, then in the Christian assemblies, with reverence and diligence. 6. The daily reading and studying of the word by all sorts of persons, ever since its first writing, rendering every alteration liable to immediate observation and discovery, and that all over the world, with 7. The consideration of the many millions that looked on every letter and tittle of this book as their inheritance, which for the whole world they would not be deprived of, and in particular for the Old Testament, now most quoted in Owen's day. 8. The care of Ezra and his companions, the men of the great synagogue, in restoring the scripture to its purity when it had met with the greatest trial that it ever underwent in this world, considering the paucity of the copies then extant. 9. The care of the Masoretes from his days and downward, to keep perfect and give an account of every syllable in the scripture. 10. The constant consent of all the copies in the world, so that, as sundry learned men have observed, there is not in the whole Mishnah, Gemara, or either Talmud, any one place of scripture found otherwise read than as it is now in our copies. 11. The security we have that no mistakes were voluntarily or negligibly brought into the text before the coming of our Saviour, who was to declare all things, and that he not once reproves the Jews on that account, when yet for their false glosses on the word he spares them not. 
12. Afterward, the watchfulness which the two nations of Jews and Christians had always won upon another, with sundry things of the like importance, might to this purpose be insisted on. Because of this wonderful working of divine providence and the preservation of the biblical text, Owen and the Reformers were convinced of quote, the purity of the present original copies of the scriptures, or rather, copies in the original languages, which the Church of God doth now, and hath for many ages, enjoyed as her chiefest treasure, end quote. He confidently asserted that, quote, that the whole scripture, entire, is given out from God, without any loss, is preserved in the copies of the originals yet remaining. In them all, we say, is every letter and tittle of the word, end quote because of, quote, the providential preservation of the whole book of God, we may have full assurance that we enjoy the whole revelation of his will in the copies abiding amongst us. Surely, every letter and title of the word of God remains in the copies preserved by his merciful providence for the use of his church, End quote. When Owen speaks of the copies of the originals preserved unto the church of God, he is referring to the manuscripts of the Byzantine New Testament text, and of the Masoretic Old Testament text. Therefore, by these statements, Owen is defending the purity and authority of the TR and Masoretic text, and is rejecting the idea that it is proper to amend these received texts by human conjecture, by readings and obviously corrupt codices, such as Codex D, by readings that differ from, quote, the concurrent consent of all others that are extant in the world, end quote i.e., from the consent of the manuscripts of the Byzantine textual family, or by translations of the biblical text. For Owen and the Reformed Church, the common received text of Scripture were the sole standard for truth for judging doctrine, translations, or textual variants. Owen states, quote, Let it be remembered that the vulgar copy we use was the public possession of many generations, that upon the invention of pursuing it was the actual authority throughout the world, with them that used and understood that language. Let that, then, pass for the standard, which is confessedly its right and due. Lettuce points out that, quote, Owen was calling for a canonical view of the text, or the text as canon, by which to assess variance, but variants from the providentially preserved canonical form of the texts of Scripture. End quote. Owen fully understood the grave danger to the authority of Scripture if the doctrine of providential preservation was set aside, and with it the canonical view of the original texts. He, as a good Calvinist, knew of quote, the vanity, curiosity, pride, and naughtiness of the heart of man. End quote and that the boldness of the critics in attacking the received text by collecting and publishing variants from that text was not primarily due to a desire to give the church a better text, but rather to publish them as evidence of their own scholarship and diligence. More significantly, Owen saw that this rejection of the doctrine of preservation and the acceptance of the supposition that the received texts were corrupt was theologically motivated and that this promise would lead to all kinds of mischief and be used as a principal tool of Satan for the overthrow of the souls of many. Owen declared that, quote, What use hath been made, and is as yet made in the world, of this supposition that corruptions have befallen the originals of the Scripture, which those various lections at first view seem to imitate? I need not declare. It is in brief the foundation of Mohammedanism, 
the chiefest and principal prop of popery, the only pretense of fanatical anti-scripturalists, and the root of much hidden atheism in the world. At present there is sent unto me by a very learned person, upon our discourse on the subject, a treatise in English, with the Latin title of Fides Divinia, wherein its nameless author, on this very foundation, labors to avert and utterly render useless the whole scripture, how far such as he may be strengthened in their infidelity by the consideration of these things, i.e., the supposed corruption of the originals, time will manifest. End quote. Surely, says Owen, the assumption that the received texts are corrupt will be, quote, as an engine suited to the destruction of the important truth before pleaded for, i.e., verbal inspiration and providential preservation, and as a fit weapon put into the hands of men of atheistical minds and principles, such as this age abounds withal, to oppose the whole evidence of truth revealed in the scripture. I fear with some either the pretended infallible judge, the Roman Church, or the depth of atheism will be found to lie at the door of these considerations." End quote. Owen, unlike his reformed descendants of today, was keenly aware of the theological issues at stake in the textual criticism of the original language text of the Bible. He had witnessed firsthand the way in which the Roman Catholics attacked the authority of Scripture by means of textual criticism. He said, quote, Papists have ploughed with their heifer to disparage the original and to cry up the vulgar Latin. End quote. He also believed that naturalistic text-criticism principles, which set aside preservation in the canonical texts of the Reformation and sought to indicate the corruption of these texts, undermined the doctrine of sola scriptura, and worked, quote, to frighten poor unstable souls into the arms of the pretended infallible guide, end quote. Owen solemnly warned the Protestant Church, quote, We went from Rome under the conduct of the purity of the originals, I wish none have a mind to return thither again under the pretense of their corruption. End quote. The textual criticism of the Bible has never been, and never will be, a neutral enterprise carried out by scholars who just want to know the facts. In truth, every textual critic approaches the matter with definite presuppositions concerning the nature of Scripture and concerning the locus of authority for determining the true text. Owen's work helps us to understand that there are really only three approaches to the textual criticism of the original text of Scripture. 1. The Protestant approach, which presupposes the authority of Scripture to delimit the true text by means of the doctrines of divine inspiration and preservation. 2. The Roman Catholic approach, which presupposes the authority of the Roman Church to define the text of Scripture by means of the pronouncement of the Pope or councils. And 3. The anti-scripturalist, or atheist, approach, which presupposes the authority of man's reason to determine the text of the Bible according to the scientific method. In our day, the third method reigns supreme among both liberal and evangelical scholars, though many of those who hold to this system would be indignant at having their scholarly method labeled as the anti-scripturalist or atheist approach to text criticism. Yet it is undeniable that their methodology is naturalistic to the core. This method arose during the era of the Enlightenment, the period between the close of the 17th and the 18th centuries, when men sought to cast off the authority of the revelation of God and Scripture and replace it with the absolute authority of human reason. 
the Enlightenment advocated full human autonomy and the power of man's intellect to establish truth and morality. Biblical scholars applied this perspective to textual criticism. Consequently, they rejected the doctrines of verbal inspiration and providential preservation, or at least considered them irrelevant to the task of textual criticism, declared that the Bible should be treated like any other book, and established certain canons of criticism that should be used to determine the true text. These scholars were adamant in their belief that the TR was a corrupt and debased form of the New Testament text, and were united in their goal to dethrone the Protestant canonical text and replace it with one of their own making. The results of the Enlightenment, anti-scripturalist approach to textual criticism, can be seen today in the N.A. and U.B.S. edition of the Greek N.T., it is upon these editions that the modern English translations of the New Testament are based. But Owen's treatise challenges us to see modern Enlightenment textual criticism for what it truly is. Owen calls the Church to return to the Reformed and Protestant approach to textual criticism and to the canonical texts of the Reformation. The Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the Textus Receptus of the New Testament a recovery of the Reformed approach that is based on the theological foundations of verbal inspiration and providential preservation will enable the Church to cast off the unsound, humanistic theories and methods of modern textual criticism and the modern critical text. Freed from the grip of naturalistic textual criticism, the Church will once again confess its faith in the purity of the original texts of Scripture that have been received for centuries as the authentic Word of God. The Church will exchange the skepticism of the text of yesterday, i.e., the MCT, for the certitude of the text of centuries, i.e., the TR and Masoretic text. The Church will again have a canonical view of the original text, instead of the current, cannot-know-for-sure view of the text. The recovery of the confessional reformed view of God's providential preservation of the scriptures as taught by Owen is necessary if the Church is to get on with the task of fulfilling the great commission of discipling the nations. If we are to build the kingdom of God in heathen lands, and rebuild the kingdom of God in those lands where the Church once flourished, we can only do this on the sure foundation of faith and the purity of our present scripture texts. Andrew Sandlin put it well, quote, if we expect to rebuild Christian civilization on the Bible, we must espouse an understanding of the Bible that guarantees its verbal inspiration and infallibility. We cannot expect to rebuild Christian civilization apart from a verbally inspired Bible, in which we have confidence as such. End quote. Appendix 2. The King James Only Error. In this book, English Bible Translations, by what standard, we have argued for the superiority of the authorized version, KJV, of the English Bible over all other ancient and modern English translations of the Bible. We have specifically stated, quote, The doctrinal standards of verbal inspiration and providential preservation lead to the conclusion that the authorized King James Version is the best and most trustworthy English version of Holy Scripture. The authorized version is firmly based on the traditional, providentially preserved original texts of Scripture, the Masoretic Text and the Textus Receptus, and it is an excellent formal equivalent translation. Therefore, it ought to be received as a true and faithful presentation of the Word of God in English. No other version can surpass or even match the authorized version's faithfulness to the form of the original its quality English, its completeness, its loyalty to the traditional texts, its spirituality, 
its authoritativeness, and its ecclesiastical usage. End quote. On this basis, we have called the English-speaking church to return to the AV, i.e., the KJV, as the standard English Bible, to use this Bible in its public reading and preaching, and to exhort its members of the church, quote, to use the authorized version in their homes, and to bring this Bible to the public services and gatherings of the church, end quote. This measured but definitive stance on the subject of English Bible translations will be understood by many, no doubt, to be a variety of what is called the King James-only position. However, such a conclusion would be false, and based on a misunderstanding of the position taken in this book. Therefore, to make sure we are not mistaken as a KJV-only view, this appendix will state in summary form our overall perspective on the KJV in relation to the original language text of Scripture, to the confessions of the English Reformed Churches, and to other English translations. God's revelation was given in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and in the New Testament in Greek. Therefore, these original texts hold a unique place in the plan of God and hold a position of supreme authority in the Church. All versions of the Bible, whether they are ancient, Syriac, Coptic, Latin, Armenian, or modern, German, Dutch, French, English, are based on and translated from the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures. Hence, all translations of the Bible are subordinate to the Hebrew and Greek texts, because it is from these original texts that they derive their being and authority. Without the prior existence of the originally inspired Hebrew and Greek scriptures, they could not exist and would have no authority at all. The fidelity of a Bible translation to these original texts determines the quality of the translation. A translation is good or bad depending on its adherence to the text and meaning of the original. Consequently, a translation of the Bible is the infallible and all-sufficient word of God to the degree that it conforms to the text of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures, in word, grammatical structure, and meaning. Because the KJV is an outstanding translation of the originally inspired and providentially preserved texts of Holy Scripture, the Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the received text of the Greek New Testament, it is a trustworthy and authoritative version. In fact, when all things are considered, and when all the available English versions are judged on the basis of the doctrines of verbal inspiration and providential preservation, the KJV proves itself superior to all the other versions. Therefore, the position taken in this book is that it should be considered the standard English Bible. However, no matter how high we regard the KJV, it is still subordinate to the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Old Testament and the received text of the Greek New Testament upon which it is based. The perspective on the final authority of the original language text of Scripture is the position taken in the major doctrinal confessions of those adhering to the Reformed faith in the English-speaking world. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, all contain the following declaration. Quote, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the Church is finally to appeal to them. End quote. The doctrinal confession asserts three very important things about the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. First, these texts, and these alone, are immediately, directly, inspired of God. 
The miracle of inspiration applies only to the original writings of the men who wrote the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. The quality of inspiration is present in translation, but only to the degree that the translation conforms to the original language text of Scripture. Second, these immediately inspired texts have been kept pure in all ages by the supernatural work of divine preservation. The God who inspired the original writings has not permitted these writings to be lost, but has exercised such a care over their transmission that they have been available in their essential purity in every age. Therefore, translations of the Scripture are faithful to the Word of God to the extent that they are based on the providentially preserved Hebrew and Greek texts. Third, the immediately inspired, providentially preserved original Hebrew and Greek scriptures are the court of final appeal in the Church. This does not mean that translations have no authority, or that the Church is not to appeal to them in deciding the truth of God. What it means is that translations, as good and faithful as they may be, are yet subordinate to the originals they are based on. Because a translation may err here and there, or may not present the word of God with the same clarity as the original texts, the Church's doctrine and practice must ultimately rest on the providentially preserved Hebrew and Greek texts of Scripture. This important doctrinal confession on the inspiration, preservation, and authority of the original Hebrew and Greek Bible provides significant support for the perspective on Bible translations set forth in this book. The doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration and providential preservation are the basis for judging the faithfulness of a translation to the originally inspired Word of God. Verbal inspiration leads to formal equivalence as the method of translation. Providential preservation leads to the received ecclesiastical original language texts of the Old and New Testaments as the basis for translation. Because the KJV is a formal equivalent translation of the received canonical text of the Church's Scripture, it is an authoritative translation that should be used and defended by Bible-believing Christians. None of the modern translations upholds, in theory or in practice, the doctrinal confessions of the Reformed English-speaking Church, as does the KJV. The confessional stance on the final authority of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures is at odds with the KJV-only camp, where some claim that the KJV is immediately inspired, i.e., the KJV translators were inspired in the same way the biblical authors were inspired. Some even claim that the text of the KJV is superior to extant texts of the Greek and Hebrew scriptures. Such views are heretical in nature, and have their origins in the imaginations of men. Furthermore, the place of the KJV in the history of the English Bible and its relationship to previous English versions is a factor that is often ignored by the KJV-only advocates. The KJV did not appear in a vacuum, nor is its language the sole product of the men who produced this version. The KJV stands in line with the great English translations of the Reformation era that began with the outstanding work of William Tyndale and continued up through the Geneva Bible, the direct predecessor of the KJV. The purpose of the KJV translators was not to make a new translation, but to build on the labors of those who went before them. Here is how they themselves define their words in their Translators to the Reader preface to the KJV. It is high time to leave them, and to show in brief what we proposed to ourselves, and what course we held in this our perusal of the Bible. Truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, 
or out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be expected against, that hath been our endeavor, that our mark. End quote. The good one that they had in mind was the Geneva Bible, and the fact is that the KJV takes over a great portion of the text of the Geneva. In doing so, they were incorporating much of the original work of Tyndale because the Geneva Bible itself is based largely upon Tyndale. William Tyndale and the translators of the Geneva Bible were operating on the same theological assumptions about inspiration, preservation, and translations as were the men who produced the KJV. They were all guided by the same biblical theology and the same divine providence, and they all translated according to the formal equivalence method and from the same received original Hebrew and Greek texts. In consequence, their versions, though not identical, were essentially the same. The unique place of the KJV is that it was the capstone of the Reformation era's efforts to translate the Bible into English. The KJV translators had a number of factors in their favor, the chief being that they could stand on the shoulders of those who went before them. As such, the KJV surpassed these previous versions, and, in the providence of God, it came to be recognized as the best English Bible due to its own intrinsic merit. In conclusion, then, the position taken in this book is not what is often called the KJV-only view, and is, in fact, opposed to the KJV-only perspective. The view presented here is not that the KJV is the only representation of the Word of God in English. Example, we believe that the Geneva Bible is also God's Word in English, but that, all things considered, the KJV is the best. The KJV, as all versions are, is subordinate to the Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the Byzantine text of the New Testament. There is only one final authority in the Church, the immediately inspired and providentially preserved original language texts of the Bible. The view on English Bible translations argued for here is based on the theology and confessions of the Reformed Church concerning the inspiration, preservation, and translation of the Bible. You could say that we take a confessional view of the Bible translation in this book, and that this confessional view leads us to the conclusion that the KJV is the most faithful and authoritative version of the Bible in English. Appendix 3. A Sample Church Policy on Translations The following statement is intended as a guide for churches that desire to take a clear stand with the confessing Protestant Church on the issue of English Bible translation, and that also desire to promote the use of the most faithful version available to English-speaking Christians. This pronouncement could be added to a church's confessional documents or as a separated policy declaration. This statement is only suggestive and can be modified to fit each particular church context and situation. 1. This church confesses its faith in the divine, verbal inspiration and providential preservation of the original Hebrew and Greek texts of Holy Scripture. These original texts, having been kept pure in all ages by God's singular care and providence, are the authentic word of God and the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. 2. However, because most Christians are not able to understand the original languages of the Bible and must read God's Word in an English translation, and because there are so many English translations of varying quality, it is important for the sake of the truth and unity that this church take a definite position on Bible translation and the accepted English version for church use. 3. There are two primary factors that go into making a translation of the Bible the translation philosophy to be employed, and the determination of the authentic Hebrew and Greek text to be translated. 
This church believes that the doctrine of verbal inspiration calls for the translation philosophy of formal equivalence, as opposed to dynamic equivalence, and that the doctrine of providential preservation leads to the acceptance of the traditional received texts of Scripture, the Masoretic text in the Old Testament and the Textus Receptus in the New Testament, as opposed to the modern critical texts. 4. Therefore, only those English versions of the Bible that are based on the traditional received texts and are translated according to the formal equivalent method can be considered faithful and trustworthy representations of the Word of God in English. 5. The English version that best meets these standards of translation is the authorized King James Version. 6. Therefore, the accepted English version for use in this church will be the authorized version, this means that of all the English translations, only the authorized version is to be used in the public reading and teaching of the scriptures and in all the services and ministries of the church. Furthermore, all members of the church are urged to use the authorized version in their homes and to bring this Bible to the public services and gatherings of the church. This has been English Bible Translations. By what standard? Written by William O. Einwächter. Narrated by Drake Johnson.